Hey everyone, just a quick word before we begin. Etc. The podcast is a production of the Regent College Student Association, but is not directly affiliated with or endorsed by Regent College. Similarly, the views expressed on Etc. The podcast are only those of the participants and do not reflect the views of Etc. or the Regent College Student Association. With that being said, let us thank you for joining us on today's episode, and let's get on to the show. there hawaii hawaii who not bad how are you it's a great start hello and welcome to etc the podcast uh we are your host well i'm your host dryden demchuk and i am here with a new co-host this week Abigail Germain. Abigail Germain, assistant, etc. editor here on the show with us today. Russell is unavailable, and we thought it might be a good time to diversify ourselves and get my dear friend Abigail, who has been helping me uh, with the paper publication of etc. for uh, this entire year and been doing a great job of it. She, yeah, thank you. <laughs> she is uh, sharp as a whip. She is extremely talented in the arts of piano playing and dancing, and she's an aspiring hip-hop artist, and we are so excited to have you with us on the show today. So thank you, Abigail, for co-hosting with me. Wow, that's quite the introduction, Dryden. Thank you. And as our guest, we have another aspiring hip-hop artist, another piano player, and a, another student here at Regent College who is also sharp as a whip, Mr. John Nolan. Sharp as a whip? Sharp as a whip. I haven't heard that one before. Really? Like, which? Sharp as a tack or like what would you say smart as a whip i vote whip smart well now i'm really questioning having said sharp as a whip is have you heard that before i think i've heard it before yeah i thought so maybe it's just a canadian thing who knows <laughs> i doubt it anyway john maybe thank i'm you. just not that sharp as a whip john thank you so much for being on the show today of course gladly how is everyone doing with this stage of the semester we are in we are in the crunch we certainly are in that mm-hmm. midterm season what are you guys working on Ab. I am currently working on just random assignments, papers, um, CTCREs. CTCREs. <laughs> I just discovered that, um, uh, what is it, Matthew 11, 7 to 19, uh, when Jesus talks about going to see a reed out in the wilderness, that that might be a potential nod to... Uh, who is it, Herod, I think? There's like he would he would always have a reed with him on uh the coins. Oh like in circulation. So oh. he was like taking taking a nice little swipe at at the uh Maccabean. So broadly speaking, I'm working on learning to be a good good little exegete. Nice. Because that's what theology is all about. Exegesis. Yeah, exegesis. <laughs> And is that getting any Jacob better for Vandiver you? told me that apparently he had some pastor down in, I think it was, I think it was Tennessee who said, you know, when we get started with all that exegesis, Jesus exits. So <laughs> I'm trying to keep, trying nice. to keep him around. <laughs> that's, so. that's awful. Yeah. I that okay, that makes me really happy to be here at Regent. Yeah. Um having having already taken Matthew Lynch's exegesis class. Right. And I will say, I absolutely love that class. And I'm not just saying that because I think Matthew Lynch listens to the podcast. I actually did really enjoy that class. I wrote my paper on the parable that Jesus tells about the children in the marketplace. Yeah, it's that same passage, nice. right? It's Matthew eleven, seven to nineteen. Or like the parables, like sixteen to nineteen, I think. Maybe I don't remember. I don't remember having to learn anything about the reed, though. Yeah, that's the when when he's like asking the people, "Why did you go out into the wilderness to see a reed? No, to see people who wear robes. No, you went to see a prophet, but more than a prophet, John the Baptist is Elijah. This is what we were talking about in the U-Haul. 
in the U-Haul the other day. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Glad, I'm glad you brought yeah. up the U-Haul, John, because that's been the other huge part of Abigail and uh, mine and Abigail's life. Is With some help from John, which was mine a bit excellent. smaller, but you know, yeah, we uh, we, we uh, gained some experience in the art of piano moving. We oh did. It got gosh. smoother did as we really? went along. Yeah. No way. <laughs> That's wild. Did you that actually not? Did no, you not had, know we moved the piano? I had no idea. It took eight of us. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, we brought in some good. very helpful volunteers from the student body at Regent, and uh, we moved that thing. Hmm. We brought in some people who are much more muscular than uh, either John or I. Nice. And uh, yeah, with eight of us gathered around that thing, it. Uh, <laughs> There's so many names flying around my head that <laughs> I would like to make fun of right now. But one of them was Daniel Troy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And we um, we compared it to the orcs pushing the battering ram up to the gates of Minas Tirith in Return of the King. Mm-hmm. That was that was how it felt. I was very glad they didn't treat my piano like that, though. <laughs> we yeah. But. Wait a minute, Minas Tirith and Return of the King isn't that the two towers? No, that's Helm's Deep. Oh right, right, yeah. right. I forget you're not a Tolkien guy. Yeah, I mean he's he's cool. I, I Jameson told me that apparently he was writing letters to his sons in wartime, mm-hmm. uh, insisting that they uh, make sure that they pray to their guardian angels because it was really really important for. I mean, probably a variety yeah. of things. I mean, yeah. he was devoutly Catholic ferocious which is really funny to me because i as much as i have been a massive tolkien fan for my whole life i do know that if i ever met him in person i would have some insane theological disagreements with him oh i heard they were kind of all insufferable actually we had a brent waters uh from garrett evangelical theological seminary here a couple weeks ago with uh the houston center that jens runs and he used Tolkien's and Lewis's friendship in his book on um, basically on the necessity of, of the mundane and the friendship in some ways seems exemplary, but he himself said that they were probably the last people that he would want to have dinner with because it would be fantastically obnoxious to be in a room with the Inklings. So, I mean, he's probably the, the one favorite story that I do know of Tolkien from like outside of the outside of the, uh, fantasy genre is uh after vatican was it after vatican ii that yeah. they would do the mass in english yeah, right. yeah yeah and he would go to mass and like shout out the latin oh, mass yes. yeah. alongside the english mass yeah. to express his distaste for the english yeah right <laughs> man you know you, you surely he had other options like there were still people doing traditional mass you know what i mean well there's still people today that can, exactly yeah. Masses, yeah i've so, been to one there was a guy um there's a guy who claims to be the pope who was in edmonton recently and i knew some people who got to meet him like i'm sure people like that are still out there holding the you know, like people who are convinced that Vatican II was the downfall of Catholicism. Yeah, right. Who's claiming to be the Pope? There's a few. There's okay. a few of them. I know that wow. there are people who insist that Ratzinger is still the Pope, like that Francis is illegitimate somehow. So Benedict XVI is like, yeah, he's like the real one. Even though you're, he, not, you're nodding. I've heard this too. Mm. Even though he resigned himself. So I don't really, Interesting. I don't really follow the logic. But. You I, said you've been to traditional mass, Abigail? Yes. A Latin mass? What'd you think? I really enjoyed it. It was a totally different experience. And in general, the people who were there were much more serious about the mass and about their faith, you could tell. Right. Um, so it made it a very different Compared environment than the English masses I've been to. Okay. Um, they tend to be all the people who just need to go to mass every week because they're Catholic. <laughs> um <laughs> Not it that tends we're doing to be. broad strokes on this show, but you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm there at the English Mass. Yeah, regularly. Oh, semi regularly. Really? I, I, yeah. You and I have been friends for a while. I this first time hearing this. I was going to say, are you making this up for the show? <laughs> no, I'm not. I haven't been in a while, but I have been busy. But uh, I go to the cathedral downtown, Holy Rosary Cathedral, yeah. and I like their eight o'clock Mass on Sunday mornings. And it's Latin? It No, that one's not Latin. The okay. Latin one is at five or six later in the day. So I've oh. only been to that one once. <clears throat> what was the, uh, I'm actually curious, what was the sentiment around Catholicism in y'all's households? 
exceedingly negative. Okay. Yeah. Well, see, okay, I will be- clarify. Um, I went to a Catholic school. So for like kindergarten to grade eight, I was in a Catholic school. Right. And my parents, I think, wanted me in a Catholic school um, because, I mean, credit to my parents. I think they liked that I was being exposed to a different tradition outside hmm. of our extremely low church Pentecostal right. background. I think they liked that we were getting exposed to something different. And um, also it was just the, the closest Christian school to where I grew up. Right. I think so it was a, it was a natural choice. So I was exposed to Catholicism uh, quite a bit for my elementary school years. And I remember anytime anything about um, anything theological came up in school, I would, I remember going home and talking to my parents about it and um, how, and, and, you know, them explaining to me why we don't necessarily believe or practice the things that the Catholic church practices. And I do specifically remember um, in all of our school assemblies, we would go through a series of prayers and there was the Lord's prayer and then there was the hail Mary. And I remember, (laughs) Sorry, I don't think I don't think this is really the audience for that, but whatever, it's fine. Sorry. And I I do remember my parents. I don't know if they ever had to like talk to my teachers about this, but I do remember them um, telling my sister and I that we should probably not say the Hail Mary. That we should probably just stand there quietly when the school said it. Interesting. Yeah. There's there's what about you, Abigail? What's my your, family. Your, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all along, my family's been really open to all of different Christian denominations. Okay. Um, my mom actually every day does like a Catholic. Um, I'm not sure what the name would be. It's like a lectio. Okay. But Catholic version. Right. Um, I think she does most that every of them day. Are, are Catholic, in fact. Yeah. Well, lectio divina is right. technically an Anglican thing. But yeah, yeah, but the Catholic version, she does that every day. Um, my dad tried to bring um, a monk into our little country Baptist church to talk to the people one time, and he got shut down <laughs> big time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So they're very open to it. My parents have always kind of jokingly said that if it, everything doesn't work out at their church, that they are going to become Catholic and go to Saturday mass every week. <laughs> So there you go. Okay. Interesting. Huh. You know, I will say, I don't know if I've ever been explicit with this on the show before, but when I first moved to Vancouver, um, four or five years ago, I was determined to not be Pentecostal anymore. And part of my experimentations was, uh, going to a Catholic mass, uh, a couple of times. And, uh, I think I I think I found a happy middle ground in Anglicanism for a while. A lot of people do. Um, yeah, um, that's what uh, that's what one of our previous guests uh, talked about. Um, talked about Anglicanism being sort of a gateway drug into the into the high church for a lot of people. The Via Medea. The Via Medea. But I I did decide in in that time of kind of exploration where I was attending various different churches and exploring other traditions. I think I settled that I would go Orthodox before I went Catholic. Nice. That That's where I've landed, yep. too. I enjoy the Catholic Mass, but there are so many things that I would have a problem with before I could become Catholic. Yeah. Um, that I don't have, find so much in Orthodoxy. Mm. So There weren't too many straws for me left, but one of the last ones was after well i don't know i don't want to be insensitive but after my dad died we got this thing in the mail probably like i don't know like like two weeks later from my aunt so my dad grew up in the in massachusetts in like a big irish catholic family kind of like abigail's but without the you know protestantism or whatever yeah (laughs) um and we got we got this thing in the mail that was like basically telling us that they had purchased like a variety of indulgences for him they were like paying into the indulgence system just to get him out of purgatory so that is that still the thing it's still popping so i don't know Uh, dad wherever you are you know if i was playing devil's advocate and was trying to defend it i could almost see getting there through a sort of communion of the saints sure 
idea that like the uh, you don't you don't leave the church by dying right so then to a certain extent does the church not you know is the church not able to still kind of intercede on your behalf right i i don't th- i i'm just trying to no i can see where you're going i'm trying to like sympathize. The, the whole intercessory idea yeah based on the communion of the saints and the tradition of the church one of the biggest things in my life that um kind of changed the way i thought about catholicism and just like higher church practices in general was uh i was talking to a friend of mine about um the idea of saints um because in again in in my context having grown up in a catholic school but go uh, in a pentecostal family um that was one attack on catholicism that i always heard was oh they pray to the saints and they pray to mary and this is idolatry right, right? we we, right. we yeah. can only pray I've to heard god that. right and so i was talking to a friend of mine about this and and i was still kind of in that mindset that that was idolatry and uh, this friend of mine was like well dryden we're friends and like if i was going through something i could ask you to pray for me right and i was like yeah and he's like so if you died could i still ask you to pray for me and i was like hmm Hmm. okay interesting Yeah. yeah and that kind of shifted I don't know. I'm still not on board with it, but that gave me a, more of an understanding. Well, even just in in the Protestant tradition in general, we have a hard time even praying to the separate persons and the Godhead. Like we we don't pray to the the Spirit, Holy Spirit, or to well, sometimes oh, to Jesus. Well, we, but I, I've in my in my tradition, we pray to the Holy Spirit, 100. percent Okay, well there you go. Yeah. Prove me wrong right there. So there was um, some sort of insistence that you maintain the structure of the our father in all prayer where you were in your in a in a lot of the context i've been in yes it's strange to pray to the separate persons which is not at all the case in orthodoxy or catholicism from my experience and this is one of those weird areas where i think the orthodox church and the pentecostal world have sympathy for each other there's a whole lot there's a whole lot there's also a lot too much um what would you say uh, too much purchase given to the like mystical magical side of things like beloved people that i go to church with seem far more concerned with like and i heard a story about this saint and he was praying and everyone who saw him <laughs> said that he was glowing and floating off the ground i'm like okay nice. i mean i admittedly if i saw something like that it'd be pretty remarkable but it seems like it kind of misses the point mm. a little bit <laughs> gotta gotta stay christological folks Say incarnated. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. John, you have a kind of interesting story of having grown up in a uh, lower church tradition and finding yourself in orthodoxy. Um, would would yeah. you care to elaborate on that a bit? Yeah. I'll try to think of a way to make it somewhat succinct. Um, yeah. I, I guess, I mean, I grew up in kind of like a, I don't know a town full of the intelligentsia. So I'm from Charlottesville, Virginia, where the university of Virginia is. Um, and the church that I went to, um, was pretty homogenous. Um, but there were a lot of people that were tied to the university there. And, uh, it was just such a strange amalgamation because it was PCA confessionally. It seemed like there were a lot of like, sort of Baptists that were maybe fed up with some of what they perceived to be the silliness of the mainline churches in like the late seventies and the eighties. They were like, we're going to start our own. Cause that seems to be the, you know, that's typically the move. Yep. Um, so there were a lot of Baptists involved. So like I learned recently that I wasn't even really like baptized properly. I was mm. dedicated and then the leadership shifted, and I think they just assumed that, like, oh yeah, like he was, you know, he was baptized. Yeah, he got. Oh, the, so you've you've never been baptized? Uh, apparently not. Interesting. So, yeah, it probably explains a was lot. Was that because <laughs> your church started out PCA or Baptist, and then went PCA, or like what happened? No, it was always PCA. But I I just remember recently speaking very like, uh, my mom very clearly told me she said, you know, you were dedicated as a child. But I don't think that you were like, you know, 
well, we wouldn't have done immersion, but yeah, even like the sprinkle and you get your yeah. Because the PCH church does do that, right? Those oh things, yeah, totally, infants? totally. I've seen a gajillion of them, and I I'm thought I, sure I thought I was part of the squad that way. Because <laughs> I, I I was dedicated as a child, <laughs> right. but then I was baptized as a teenager, right? When and, you like yeah. decided to make when, your when, confession. When you're old enough to make your public profession of faith, right? Yeah, you know yeah. that's actually one the jury's kind of out for me on. Yeah, and I think that's that. That I will say is one of the things that I quite like about being Orthodox is um, there are certain dogmas that are non-negotiable for sure. Um, you know, Jesus suffered according to the flesh; these kinds of things. But there's a lot that. Um, has some flexibility. I mean, most Orthodox would be horrified that anybody would have any questions about infant baptism, whether or not it's whether or not it's on. Mm. But I'm one of those people. Yeah. Like I, I don't know. I, I I can I can see it. I can see it from both sides. Yeah. But what's the? Uh, I don't know. I don't know where you're you're at on this infant baptism. Yeah. I actually had to. I was confronted with this issue just recently because my little niece, who's like I don't know four or five months old was just baptized. Okay. And I thought I was perfectly fine with it. But then when this came up, I was like, I don't know. That seems, I don't feel quite as comfortable with it as I thought I would be. And so I had to think about it. And I can see from both sides. I don't think I have a strong stance either way. I think if I had to choose, I would go uh, like believer's baptism. But I do see the value in the covenant aspect of infant baptism. Yeah, right. So... Yeah, I'm not. I don't have a strong opinion either way. Yeah. Well, I definitely. I remember watching a sermon that I think it was Stanley Hauerwas that was giving on. Um, we actually. Uh, it's good that you mentioned that because we actually have Stanley Hauerwas uh, right here in the that's studio. Right, we do. Yeah, let's come all the way from America just to talk. <laughs> Jesus is your personal savior. You're better off without him. <laughs> Anyways. I, I had to do that like, once. I'm sorry. Yeah. So that was good. Stan's gone for now. <laughs> yep. Yeah, bye, bye, Stan. So much Get for ready. that. Yeah. Um, he was saying that basically, uh, I'm trying to remember what it was. I guess he was exegeting Abraham along the lines of saying that our um, uh, our primary family is no longer related to blood first and foremost. So I can appreciate baptism welcoming child into into a family on that mm-hmm. basis and saying that your most fundamental identity actually in a familial context is to the christian community mm-hmm. and i mean you know you can i guess in some sense maybe not biologically but you can you can leave your family if you want it's just yeah. it's, it's painful for all involved but mm-hmm. it's i think the reason that i have hesitations about it is we talk such a big game about the church being any given church actually being a family. And I think that's pretty preposterous phenomenologically speaking. Mm. Like every time a pastor gets up to like preach to like 1200 people, which by the way, in Virginia is like a pretty medium sized church and Mm -hmm. says like, friends, this is the gospel. I'm just like, (laughs) dude, I'm not your friend. Yeah. (laughs) You've spoken for probably a grand total of seven minutes and you may or may not know my name. Yeah. You know, fair enough. So it seems a little yeah. bit odd if that's the 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 fundamental, or at least one of the fundamental theological bases for for infant baptism, and yet we're obviously not living up to that living up to that standard. But there's all kinds of reasons for that. IDK, mm-hmm. bro, I don't know. But you, I literally wouldn't have a choice. Like if I yeah. had a child in orthodoxy, they would just be like, "Sorry, man." You're, yeah, he's going underwater. So they only, they, <laughs> or she, like adult baptism would only be done in the case of like an adult convert yeah. to orthodoxy. That's right, and it's very it's moving, true. actually. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There, I mean, there have been waves and waves of conversion to orthodoxy, primarily in the American South, um, of which, which is really interesting. Yeah, of which I'm kind of, sort of a part, but Charlottesville is kind of one of these weird in between places where it's obviously quite rooted in southern lineage and legacy but there's enough traffic between dc and northern virginia which might as well be its own state um as well as like it's got sort of like you know much more um what would you say a much thicker sort of like international flavor just by virtue of the university that like i don't know in some some ways i'm southern some ways i'm not 
Um, what are some things you miss about the South? Fried chicken and gas stations. Primarily. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's very cheap. It's very good. Um, just like every, every gas station has fried chicken. Many, 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 like going to the shell station, you get like, you know, basically half of a fried, like half of a chicken fried with mac and cheese and greens for like six bucks. Wow. That sounds a little suspect. It's not. I mean, depending on what you mean, it's, it's really fantastic. Nice. What else do I miss about the South? I, I will say my my minimal experience traveling through the South, which was mostly when I was a kid. Um, the biggest thing I remember is the food. Yeah. And 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 still I look back at it and I think I would probably be at least 80 pounds heavier if I lived in the South. Yeah, it, it can get yeah. dangerous real fast. Yeah. For sure. Um, what else do I miss about Virginia? Mm, I don't know. I'm actually pretty content not to be there right now so uh i mean the natural beauty in vancouver is pretty untouchable but i think virginia is is neck and neck like the appalachian mountains and you know yeah. the greenery and the fall actually is far more pleasant because here it's just like oh it's really nice it's really nice and then we just descend into darkness for like as, as 17 as we did earlier this week yeah oh yeah exactly. no i miss my long falls from home yeah too. virginia's just got this like like everything is glowing for like probably a month and a half and yeah um what were we talking about infant baptism uh we were talking about your journey into orthodoxy (laughs) right 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 um so anyways i was raised in the pca um and i let's see my my parents were um in in some in a handful of respects i would say very faithful believers um but in many and probably in some of the more important ones they were quite nominal um the interesting thing was being in a somewhat nominal christian household at least for a good chunk of my teenage years i was in a PCA church where, you know, I mean, it wasn't like we were getting double predestination every week, but I mean, I think among a lot of people that was like, that was the going consensus was kind of hyper Calvinism. And then that was very much the case in my high school. Um, So, I mean, like you Dryden, I probably would have, if there hadn't been an evangelical school, I probably would have gone to some sort of variety of Catholic school because I think my parents just thought like, oh, yeah, it's formative. But really all it was was just a public high school with a Bible class that nobody took seriously. So, Mm -hmm. um, But in that Bible class, the insistence was like, you know, double predestination and, you know, all the sort of like most, to my mind, the more um, horrific doctrines that you find (laughs) in Calvinism. Don't at me. Um, and so I kind of sort of flirted with, um, Anglicanism a little bit. Um, there's a, there's an Episcopal church in my hometown called Christ church, um, Christ Episcopal. And uh, have y'all heard of the publication Mockingbird? No. I think so. It's kind of like a, I don't know, like finding Christ in culture, uh, kind of magazine. So mm-hmm. like, you know, they'll do like you know, like, like a Christian take on, like, I don't know, like take your pick, like some Marvel movie, mm. or, you know, okay. it's, it's a little more like, you know, what would you say? Like distinguished than that, I suppose. But it's, it's a good, it's a good, good publication, good people. Um, and, uh, but no, I think I, I just had a lot of pretty like vigorous and, um, forceful ups and downs in my, uh, in my faith, um, I was pretty much for all intents and purposes, kind of out of the church from age 15 or 16 to, um, with some pockets here and there, probably like 23, Mm. 24. Yeah. So that's been a really uh, fascinating feature being at Regent is I get the sense that a lot of people spent really, really formative years in, highly saturated christian environments and like that was their community whether yeah. it was like young life in high school or inner varsity or chi alpha or what do you have like you have ucm yeah. here yeah. so um that's something that i missed um 
It's just, you know, occupied, occupied with other things. Um, so let's see, I came, came back to the church and I think just by default was going to my PCA church back home. Um, partly for familial obligation and partly um, because there was a, a pastor there um, who was, um, I mean, theologically kind of functionally like Roman Catholic. Mm. He just, which is quite the, uh, quite the juxtaposition. It's interesting in the PCA context. Yeah. And as I, as I grew up, the church had become sort of more slightly, at least slightly more liturgically conscious. Um, and the one thing I will say in, in its, in its favor is have you all heard of the Porter's Gate, the music yeah. project? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Isaac Wardell, <clears throat> excuse me, is the guy that runs that, and he was my worship pastor. Mm. So all things considered, I think I actually had it like pretty good. Mm. You know, I just I've you know I've been to other churches and I know what it can be like. Mm. Um, this mm-hmm. kind of either you know like kind of counterfeit like post rock thing that's supposed to like allegedly lift you up to the heavens or just like someone, you know, kind of strumming along to an acoustic guitar. Mm. Mm. You know. God can do what he wants and move how he wants, but I don't know. It's just not my thing. Yeah. <laughs> um so anyways, I was at this at my PCA church doing some uh worshiping a little bit here and there at this Episcopal church as well. And when I came to Regent, I mean, it was right in the height of COVID. So it was August or September 2020. And, you know, I would sort of go to services very, very occasionally. Like, mm. you know, St. Thomas Mission was right up the um, street from my house. So whenever they would have services, I would I would go. But, you know, it was the sort of thing where it was like, you know, stand in this like, you know, two by two square of tape and, you know, <laughs> mm. like don't look at anyone or you're going to get them sick. Um, which, you know, we can, let's not go there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I get it. I get it. Um, but so functionally, I mean, I, and I think everybody was kind of dealing with this. I mean, correct me if I'm correct me if I'm wrong. You know, it, it was just a very dry liturgical, period for i think for everyone definitely people just weren't being formed in in that way Mm -hmm. um are you aware there's a pca church in vancouver is it grace grace vancouver i am yes yeah and just for our audience's sake pca is presbyterian church of america yeah so it comes out of the westminster tradition yeah but there is isn't there yeah because isn't there only like one pca church in canada or something no or, grace grace is the general uh, name of the canadian pca churches mm. so there's a grace toronto my mm. family was involved with church planting a grace mississauga that it fell through it didn't work out but yeah. we were trying to plant one um and, and then yeah there's grace grace vancouver sorry even in mississauga even in mississauga wow Hmm. crazy Anyways, can can I ask uh, how the journey to Regent happened? Like, how did from yeah. from your undergrad to Regent? What did that look like? Yeah, there's kind of a Regent mafia in my hometown. There mm. are like people that are associated with the board, or people who have taught here, yada yada yada. A lot of students. I mean, it, Charlottesville is um, one of. Uh, I don't want to say one of the only places because that's certainly not true, but it's got a strong sort of intellectually rigorous um probably a little bit too intellectually self-conscious um christian community so mm-hmm. like you've heard of like the study center yeah. movement yeah there's a study center at eva and nice. you know they'll have speakers mm-hmm. and that sort of thing so anyways it's it, charlottesville for whatever reason is conducive to um uh sort of more intellectually engaged Christianity, which I am admittedly the beneficiary of my youth group leader in high school, who is still probably my best friend, um, was quite the, uh, he, he, he made Christianity both, um, morally and intellectually plausible to mm-hmm. me in a variety of ways. Um, but, uh, Jesus is really boring. Sorry, y'all. Um, <laughs> um, uh, regent, yeah. So there's kind of a regent mafia in my hometown. Be- just a lot of people that I knew. Um, I think I'd always wanted to go to divinity school of some variety. I think probably partly because of frustration at some of the um, uh, 
some of the ways that I've been taught as uh, a youngin, but also just for whatever reason, it was the thing that I was curious and curious about. So in undergrad, I, I did religious studies, which was functionally a theology degree and just found myself really enjoying it. I don't, what, uh, what, what, what urged you into that program in undergrad? Um, frankly, necessity, I think, mm-hmm. um, I just found myself kind of gravitating toward more religious studies courses um that again were sort of more oriented toward christian and in some cases jewish theology um was that a curiosity thing on your part though or was it like the profs were really good or mm, what happened yeah i'm trying to actually like inhabit what my state of mind actually would have been in those cases no i think it i think it probably was like kind of a mix of like curiosity and some some measure of providence whatever that might mean mm-hmm. um and uh uva historically has had a really strong uh religious studies and sort of functional theology department so like the church historian robert wilkin was mm-hmm. there for a long time john milbank had a long stint there david bentley hart did his his dissertation there the guy that i studied most closely with was a guy named kevin hart which is extremely funny because he's a six foot two very skinny white anglo-australian man who writes poetry and <laughs> nice. phenomenology um, so yeah I, I don't know i've never seen him in the same place so <laughs> could be can't can't rule it out um and yeah kevin kevin was was really quite instrumental i think in um sort of showing me the horizon of possibility for what theology could be. So we did um, a theology and poetry class on Gerard Manley Hopkins for the first half and then oh, a, a so little good. known English poet who I hope will be sort of more discovered as, as time goes on named Jeffrey Hill, who actually died pretty recently, I think in 2018 he's among Rowan Williams and Andrew Louth's favorites. And he's just kind of this, um, remarkable, like, ab- like r- from a very young age, he was just kind of remarkable prodigy of like absolutely fantastic kind of like existential religious poetry. Is he also mm-hmm. Catholic, like yeah, Hopkins, uh, I think he was Anglican. Okay, actually, yeah, okay. he's like super, super English for sure. I cool. mean, he's got command of all kinds of all kinds of disciplines, but. Yeah, I think he's actually quite similar to someone like Rowan Williams, where he kind of grew up in sort of like a what sounded sounded to me like kind of more like a working class situation, and and just had like preternatural talent for this sort of thing. So, anyways, nice. I took that poetry class with Kevin, and then I took a course on modern theology that was Bart de Lubac, uh, Karl Rahner, and Paul Tillich in one term, and. Uh, I think it was actually funny enough because I don't really like him very much anymore, but Carl Rahner uh, has a book called The Foundations of Christian Faith that I was just kind of stunned by, yeah, again, just how vast the portrait of Christianity was in contrast to what I'd experienced before. So I mm-hmm. think that that really planted planted the seed and or at least like, you know, watered the soil of whatever seed was there before. Um so that's kind of the journey to Regent. Uh, I was looking at other places, but Regent seemed to make the most sense for a variety of reasons. And uh, I think the orthodoxy thing, uh, I would probably blame Jens Zimmerman <laughs> mostly. Um, his Theo class, um, I mean, you know, he gives you modern and, and uh, medieval takes, but functionally it's kind of a patristics class you read a lot of those like popular patristics books Mm -hmm. and i just i remember i was actually coming off of um uh reading people like carl bart and eberhard jungel who are pretty um and actually when i first got to regent robert jensen all three of whom are pretty um however subtle like pretty squarely in the sort of like adolf von harnack like anti hellenization kind of thesis right um which i think in in uh, well as it's often construed i think is a little bit um uh is is wanting but i but i understand the i understand the the impulse and think there's some some merit to it for sure it's not it's not a clean um it's not a perfectly clean union anyways reading people like gregory the theologian and cyril and Mm -hmm. seeing the ways that they were using 
excuse me, that they were using these philosophical categories, I think was quite enlightening. And um, the work of uh, people like John Bear, and even just discovering that someone like David Bentley Hart, however, like, uh, what would you say? Uh, dubious his allegiances mm-hmm. to orthodoxy might be mm-hmm. discovering that he was orthodox was encouraging and i mean i don't know whether did y'all have any i i didn't i just didn't even have a have a notion of what orthodoxy was like i had one friend who was ukrainian i had another who was greek um but it was quite clearly just kind of uh like fairly substanceless kind of very cultural presence and very, in, in yeah. their lives yeah yeah so I don't know. Did y'all have any notion of what it was like before high, being exposed to it in like a higher education setting? I think, I mean, I come from the, uh, I come from rural Alberta, which is very heavily perforated by Ukrainian culture. And so I feel oh, like, interesting. I didn't know that. Oh yeah. There was, there were swaths of Ukrainian immigrants to the Canadian prairies huh. in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. Nice. So there's tons of, uh, I mean, my last name Demchuk is a very Ukrainian name word. Um, so are you Ukrainian? My dad was adopted into the Demchuk family. Right. So right. I'm, I'm not sure to what extent I'm Ukrainian by blood, but right. I, I was definitely exposed to a lot of Ukrainian culture growing up. It's in there. It's in there. Mm-hmm. So lots of, uh, Lots of Ukrainian culture in my upbringing brought a lot of what I now realize was kind of an orthodox, um, kind of an orthodox culture. Yeah. Um, my my Ukrainian grandparents always talked about um, having to get married in the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and how that just the process of the marriage ceremony turned them off to orthodoxy as a whole mm. because it was such a brutally long and boring ceremony and yeah. They yeah. decided they didn't want anything to do with that, but. Um, yeah, no, I was, I was exposed to it a bit culturally, but no, it wasn't like, I don't know if I really could have explained to you why it was different from Catholicism until I was in undergrad, at least. Mm -hmm. However, like kind of like flimsy a picture I may have had of Catholicism, I, at least at the time felt like I knew a lot more about that vis-a-vis Protestantism than I did Orthodoxy. Mm. Like, so, but I know you've like visited, you, you had a. Uh, what what was it out at in Hamilton, like going to like Romanian churches and stuff? Yeah, but that was again, it was a bit of a higher education thing. It was my undergrad. I had a professor, Dr. James Payton, who was very, very passionate about Eastern Orthodoxy. This was his area of specialty. We actually have one of his books in our library here um, on he the Orthodox? Orthodox Church. No, he's not Orthodox. Okay. But his entire, if you went into his office at the school, it would have the icons all over all the walls. Right. And his entire area of expertise was in that area. He went to all the churches around the world. He was, he loved it. So he would take us as students to different churches. Yeah. So I did. I visited a bunch of the different Orthodox churches in Hamilton and was exposed that way. But before that class and before his exposure, I wouldn't have known either yeah right much about it at all i would have sort of blended it with catholicism but taken a more cultural stance on it probably yeah sure sure john would you mind if we start picking your brain about your thesis a bit because i know that that is something that is consuming a lot of your time and energy right now well i wish it were i haven't (laughs) had a sufficient time actually to work on it but yeah no i can i can i'm glad to talk about it i guess Mm -hmm. do do you want to give just like just like 30 second readers digest yeah i can I, i mean the probably the most effective intro i was taking uh i mean i you know i've sort of been reading in the patristics pretty much as you know since having having come to regent and that that would be some stuff that was assigned but mostly i would say kind of doing doing my own doing my own deep dives and uh i was in a class uh, when was this i think it was this past uh winter term or spring term or whatever jens was doing a um seminar on the theology of the person and um in our first sort of lecture sessions, it seemed like people were really trying to motivate, like people were trying to sort of really like pin down, like, okay, this is what it means to be a person like this or that quality. Like persons are Mm -hmm. relational or persons are rational or persons are whatever, or it'd be like sort of a, uh, um, like a bundle of all these characteristics. Like here's all the ways that we're different or whatever. Um, 
And I think it, at a certain point, I just kind of got a little bit like fed up. We were reading this book, reading this book by a guy named Robert Spamon, who's a German uh, philosopher, 20th mm-hmm. century. And uh, it's called Persons, the Difference Between Someone and Something. So he spends this entire book um, laying out pretty elaborate philosophical arguments for why all sort of biological human beings are persons. Mm -hmm. And at the Mm -hmm. very end of the book, he's like, and maybe dolphins, but he's dead serious as far as I read him. And that's where he leaves it. Right. So it's, it's, it's it's actually, it's a very effective ending. Like I I was pretty, pretty caught off guard. So, I think there's probably some debate as to whether or not he was being serious, but yeah. in the context, it was like, and was yeah. it was it because of the rational capacities of the dolphin, or yeah, I think it's it's probably it, it, it's probably everything to do with its rationality, its relationality. I mean, I guess I think it's Augustine that says that the what differentiates human beings from non-human animals is that. Human uh, animals might have non-human animals might have desires, but we have desires for our desires. Like we have mm. desires to have better desires, whereas oh. animals are just like, you hmm. know, I got to eat something or yeah. do, do whatever. Just, right. Yeah. Um, right. So I, I admit I have not done the deepest dive on the like you know desirous uh, capabilities of porpoises, but <laughs> apparently this guy Spamon seems to think that they're pretty. So that elaborate. didn't inspire your thesis. Is, is he arguing that dolphins are actively trying to better themselves? Because that's delightful. I don't know. I don't know. It's literally f- like, what would that be? Um, it's literally three words and maybe porpoises. <laughs> like he just, he just kind of leaves it at that. I wish I had the book with me just to read it. That's directly. great. <laughs> um, just, just drop the mic yeah. and maybe porpoises. <laughs> um, so anyways, do you think, do you think he put it there on porpoise? Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying very quickly to come up with something about dolphins, but it's a little less. Uh, so anyway, thesis topic. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, yeah. So I think I just kind of got a little like <sighs> perturbed at the kind of lack of um, mysteriousness around the human person. It was like, mm. we were trying really, really hard to figure out like, okay, if all these characteristics are in place, then we can say definitively that we have a person in front of us. Some of that's really important, right? Like people who are, you know, people who are in comas or, you know, uh, children who have not been born, like obviously doing that sort of like cataphatic work of figuring out, you know, why, why is it that I can affirm that, you know, this um, elderly person who's, you know, extreme, in extreme suffering by way of dementia like why are they a person i think that's super important but at the end of the day i do think there i i just wondered has anybody done work in apophatic anthropology like in the same way that we have like a tradition of apophatic theology Mm. has somebody applied Mm. those categories to so so if i understand correctly um just to clarify for our listeners apophatic theology is saying basically we can't say what god is but we can say what god is not yeah so Mm -hmm. that's 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 initially what i thought it the fullness of it was i think uh the best explanation so i'll 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 answer your question by way of yeah yeah, yeah. i just googled apophatic anthropology just to see what came up and there's a book by a guy a romanian theologian from the 20th century called um andre screma who is a student of Dimitri Stanuli, who's probably the most significant Romanian uh, Orthodox theologian, certainly of the last century. And uh, he wrote a book called The Apophatic Anthropology. So I was yeah. like, okay, nice. let's, let's dig in. Um, so apophasis, um, I would say level one of apophasis um, is what you just described, yeah. is negation of categories in the sense that you know, we have very particular um, sphere of cataphatic knowledge that even someone like Dionysus the Areopagite will insist. And, and do you want to just quickly clear, clarify what cataph- cataphatic is? Just like actually being able to say something. Oh, right? okay. So we can say it, it's the opposite. Yeah, yeah, like we can say God is love and have confidence in yeah. that. Right. We can. So it's the positive that. side. Yeah. Right. Okay. So the cataphatic sphere. Even someone like Dionysus the Areopagite, who's often accused of being too Neoplatonic, will insist that 
we have to start from the positive affirmations that are revealed in the scriptures. Nevertheless, what the scriptures seem to reveal, um, I mean, I suppose, depending on your interpretation, is that mm-hmm. God is God is infinite, right? Mm-hmm. And that's actually something that directly contravenes Platonic notions of God. For for your average Platonist, God couldn't be infinite because if if God is infinite, then we can't contemplate God, and that's mm-hmm. a that's a deficiency, right? Like we need to be able to think about mm-hmm. what God is. Mm-hmm. But for someone like Gregory of Nyssa god's uh god is infinite in essence so just by definition the infinite is always infinitely more so whatever we say or whatever we don't say needs to be transcended by that notion of infinity Mm. um so that's level one okay um level two i would say is like um uh, what would you say um level two is probably um, silence, mm. like actually just standing in like contemplative silence before the mm-hmm. kind of mystery mm-hmm. of God. Level three, though, is is union. Like that's the point of apophatic theology is that we're actually driving toward um, not just contemplative, not just intellectual, but union of your whole being with God. And I would argue with God in Jesus Christ. Mm. So Gregory in the life of Moses puts really, really heavy emphasis on the importance of um, coming into contact with the, 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 the tabernacle that is Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That's actually the, the sort of, to, to my mind, that's sort of the, conf, the consummation of the sort of whole trope of Moses ascending the mountain and entering the darkness where God was, but it actually culminates in union with God through right. Christ. Um, and that obviously is unspeakable, right? You think about like Paul talking about being taken up into the third heaven in Second Corinthians twelve, and he says, you know, I, you know, I know a guy <laughs> who saw things that you know couldn't be talked about, and you know, I'm not going to boast about myself, but I'll boast about him, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's a pretty key uh, passage. Is for, is it correct to assume that that's Paul talk? Like Paul has had that experience? I don't know. You tell me. That, I have that, no idea. I, I've I always thought, wondered that. Yeah, because it feels like it's kind of like, oh, I'm asking for a friend kind of thing you know exactly like yeah. swim yeah you know? yeah um so anyways the thesis is basically exploring um what is the what is the role of christology in uh in an apophatic anthropology um because oftentimes however useful and um help, sort of um ingenious oftentimes this guy andre screamo can be um it kind of seems like christology gets sidelined a little bit mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. he's like at kind of almost towards the end of the book like oh well and all of this rests in the chalcedonian affirmation that christ is you know one prosopon and two fusis or whatever mm-hmm. it is one mm-hmm. person in two natures um so but you know christ is the alpha and the omega so let's start and end with them mm-hmm. if this is the task if the task in front of us is in any way theological i think that's where it needs to start and end mm-hmm. so i think i'm still a little hazy on the relationship like uh the relationship between apathetic theology and what we're doing anthropologically the notion is that um if human beings really and truly are apophatic in a sense or if, if the best way to approach our anthropology is apophatic much in the way that we approach mm theology i think that's a and and so 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 there's an affirmation in that that the human person is inherently kind of a mystery that we behold precisely right and it is a mystery capable of union with god beyond words but also in at a level of depth and uh infinitude that i think is really remarkable so that to me seems like a much better bet at least within our communities our Christian communities of motivating why it is that human beings are special. Mm. Right. And I do believe human beings are special. Like thinking Mm -hmm. about what is it? Romans eight talking about the creation is groaning in anticipation for the revealing of the children of God. Right. Mm -hmm. Like the whole creation is sort of waiting for something to happen with us. Right. Mm -hmm. Which isn't to denigrate the creation. Mm -hmm. I think Christ quite obviously takes up all, all flesh Mm -hmm. into himself in, in the incarnation and holds it all together. But, 
Um, yeah, so it, it's a way, I, I think probably if I'm going to go like full Freud on this, I think it's probably a way of getting away from like a more reformed anthropology that would say that like you're basically just like this horrendous urchin and I may or may not have decided from eternity whether or not to save you, mm. right? Um, I don't think that's particularly helpful for mm. anybody's uh, self-understanding or understanding of God. Mm. So it's quite the opposite. Mm. Right. What are the ethical implications of this? Mm-hmm. Hmm. I think the ethical implications would be that there's a radical, there's a radical affirmation of the, how would you, well, this is, you know, this is actually a challenge. This is something that I've talked to, to Jens about, I think in, in various ways. So I want to talk to him about it more. The direction that we tend to go in, or at least the direction that I've, tended to see of this sort of like human being as fundamentally mystery basically makes recourse to like liberal democratic notions of rights right Mm. like Mm. you know human beings are like inviolable of like inviolable dignity and worth and these kinds of things i suppose i would affirm that that's all true um i'm just not sure whether abstracting from the particular vocabulary and narrative of christian experience abstracting from those particulars into some sort of generalizable political principle Mm. is a good idea in Mm -hmm. fact i don't think it's a good idea Mm. Uh, i think that's the fundamental problem with document like universe excuse me the universal declaration of of human rights is yeah i mean it's all well and good to say that you know humans are of equal worth or whatever but if you don't have a shared framework actually to affirm what that worth consists in you find yourself in quite the quite the conundrum right so i think i mean i think the ethical implications are probably ecclesiological like we just need to get straight on what what it means to be a human being in the body of christ Mm. and what that means to be a human being vis-a-vis those who are not so the potentiality I think exists for all of us, but I do think this kind of u- union with Christ and this possibility for the fullness of the apophatic experience of what it means to be human is most fully actualized in the church, however poor we might be at facilitating it. Mm. Right. Isn't the very fact that it's apophatic mean that you cannot come up with a specific ethical sort of perspective to this? Or is that, am I getting it wrong? Uh well, I would certainly like to think that there would be ethical implications. Um, yeah, I would be, sure. I would be squeamish about, yeah, sort of issuing some sort of ethical program. You know, mm-hmm. um, I mm-hmm. mean, there are certain things that, obviously, if this is true, we ought not to do. You know, right. we ought not to. Right. So you take the apophatic perspective to ethics as well, then. Yeah, I think so. Okay. I mean, uh, you know, I think, I think. Uh, who is it for your box says all theology is anthropology. I mean, mm, in, in a mm-hmm. way he's right. Mm. Um, you know, all of our theological claims, I, th- I would like to think have claims not only for how we experience and understand ourselves, but how we, uh, how we treat one another, mm. you know? Um, but admittedly, I mean, I'm just at the start. So it's a, it's the right question, Dryden. I just don't know that yeah. I have a good answer for you. No, that's so, fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it, but it is the right question, right? Yeah. Cause if, if, if we're just sort of thinking, Oh, this is nice. We can, you know, have this uh, creative language to talk about ourselves and sort of soar through eternity. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't actually shape the way in which we love each other. Mm-hmm. Then that's a problem for mm-hmm. sure. And mm-hmm. I'm open to that being yeah. being a problem because I'm hearing a lot, and I'm I'm surprised by this, but I'm hearing a lot of influence of like um, guys like Emmanuel Levinas and like almost. Um, a more existential yeah um i don't know if existential is the right word but um like i feel like in a lot of the fathers a lot of like medieval theologians there's a sense in which so basically like, tell the reformation sure <laughs> <laughs> there's 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 a sense in which like what it means to be an image of god uh what it means to be like a human being yeah as separate from the plants and the animals right is sort of this like disembodied rational it's rationality yeah yeah Yeah. i mean it's a very i i guess i would say it's kind of like an aristotelian notion of like almost like levels of souls totally right Right. totally capacities of life and so in in that there's then kind of one of the reasons i'm wary of that approach is because it kind of disembodies the human being Hmm. it disembodies where our value is right 
Whereas I feel like what you're suggesting is more of a like, no, we can't just pull the valuable part out of the body. Right. We can't pull the valuable part out of the physical existence. Yeah. I feel like what you're saying affirms that there's there's a mysterious kind of inherent value yeah. in the relationality and in the in the interaction that we have with each other in creation. Precisely. Mm-hmm. And part of creation. Yeah. And we can't we can't just categorize it and remove it. Yeah. We 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 have to encounter it. Yeah. So I think the maybe mm-hmm. the way that I would put it would be as I look at you abigail and you dryden what i see really in some sense is you but i can't see through to your essence so what i'm seeing is a human being with infinite potential to receive the love of god as united with christ in a way that exceeds Mm. language exceeds thought and i suppose i mean in some sense i i mean i certainly hope that my my body will exceed itself i mean I think there's John. I think you have a great body. Oh, thank you. <laughs> All right, uh, go on, John. <laughs> Anyways, uh, uh, I, I do hope that the the I, well, I'm confident that the 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 bodies that we have, in in some sense, will um, uh, attain some sort of um, elevated status. I mean, what the how the sort of I don't want to say mechanics, but yeah, I guess the kind of mechanics of that workout, I think, is 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 certainly up for debate. But yeah, I mean, this vision certainly includes the body, um, but I do think there's a necessary kind of ontological distinction between matter and spirit that I think is just rooted in the fact that God is immaterial, mm. right? But in some sense, he is. Right. Whoa. That's the whole point of our faith is that God is material. Yeah, or at least uh, is incarnate. Right, yes. Right. Whatever yeah. that whatever that might yeah. mean. So like I, I'm not convinced that, you know, I, I want to take Paul seriously when he says that flesh and blood can't inherit the king, kingdom of God. Um, but that does not to me mean that the the body is necessarily excluded from the blessed life, but it does seem to mean that it would be transfigured in some way. Right. But the fact right. that because God would is, be embodied in any sense yeah. is remarkable. Is mm. that not when Paul says that, is that in first corinthians it's in there <laughs> is it first corinthians 15 Abigail, the fact checker oh yeah, I, we really I don't should, know off the top we, of my we, head we, we but should I really have check. a bible out we here should, we, we, we really should fact checker. let's just uh-huh. as we all pull our, our this phones this is terrible this is the uh-huh. worst <laughs> three theologies <laughs> anyways <laughs> I think the the I mean the basic the basic point that I'm trying to make is yes yeah, I, this, it's, it's the apophatic anthrop- anthropological approach does not negate the body at all but I think it much like the the way that I see the language of the councils for instance Chalcedon is that it's a gateway into mystery right? right there needs to be a fundamental affirmation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God one person in two natures you know uh united and unconfused and not yeah. sort of compromising each other's integrity but it's a starting point right there's so much more that we can that we can say beyond that that are rooted in those implications so mm-hmm. in the same way when i look at you abigail i have to affirm that what i see in some sense is what i get but that's mm-hmm. not all i get there's right. so much more right. inexhaustibly more that i could say about you and my claim in the thesis is that that is only that sort of infinite mysterious potential of human beings is only possible with Christ as the alpha and the omega of our mm. reflection on that potential. Right. Mm. So that gets, I think, sidelined oftentimes in favor of this more kind of uh, strictly kind of spiritual, somewhat disembodied notion of spirit or God mm. or something like that. Right. We really need to right. look to the cross first and foremost to to see where this potential can go right see i i so i've just fact checked it it is first corinthians 15 it says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of god so that's within the context of paul talking about the transformation of the body and you know it's it's sown perishable it's raised imperishable right all right. that um i'm wondering is there if if our anthropology begins in christology yeah see with my low church leanings mm-hmm. I'm inclined to emphasize the um, 
the movement, like the downward movement, the God becoming man, mm-hmm. Christ becoming crucified, right? Um, Christ and it, like God in Christ mm-hmm. inhabiting the radical otherness and the radical exclusion and humiliation of the cross. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, mm-hmm. I'm inclined to emphasize that. My, I have a growing conviction that, and and coming to Regent has played a huge part in this. I have a mm-hmm. growing conviction that, as much as I still want to emphasize that. I also need to emphasize the transfiguration in right. in the sense that God became man. There's a radical downward movement, but then there's also the transfiguration of Christ. Yeah. There's um in in the person of Christ, there's a kind of radical revelation of what the human being is. Mm-hmm. You know, there's mm-hmm. the downward movement of God taking on the radical otherness mm-hmm. and humiliation and exclusion of the cross, but then there's also God revealing in Christ the divinity that the human being is capable of there we go in this in in the in the sense of the transfiguration as chief keith would say bang bang <laughs> <laughs> well okay i feel like we could still plunge those depths for, oh, for we hours and hours but um, yeah it's a it's a it's a fun project um and if anybody uh, is curious i think reading um actually gregory's homilies it's primarily around gregory of nyssa but mm. by necessity mm. i'll have to go further back and might go a little bit ahead of him as well to the Chalcedonian affirmation. But mm-hmm. Gregory's homilies on the song of songs are actually a pretty remarkable instance of this ontological distinction that's rooted in, in some sense rooted in, in the immateriality of the divine nature as contrast with the material world or just all of creation while simultaneously affirming the gloriousness of creation. Mm. It's a pretty pretty remarkable synthesis that uh and Gregory I think worked out a lot of the sort of seeds of this apophatic anthropology in that and in the life of Moses, which are some of his later his mm-hmm. later works. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's where we're at right now. Interesting. Cool. Well, John, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Yes. We might have to have you on again at some point in the future to talk about how things are developing. Bring it on. Yeah, Bring it sure. on. We'll, uh, we'll leave it there for now. Thanks so much, Abigail, for joining as a co-host. And thank you, Dryden. We'll see you guys next time.